Let's open up our Bibles to the book of Acts. Anybody cool with that? We're good with that? <laughs> so after a year of going through the book of Acts, you figure like you feel like you're getting a handle on it some sort, in some way. When we left off last week, we actually left off with the uh, silversmiths of Ephesus being in great revolt. And in fact, some of the best lines said about the early church in the book of Acts are said about their enemies in Acts 19. Said by their enemies, I should say. When those enemies stand up and say, if these guys keep preaching, then Diana and Artemis, who the whole world worships, all of Asia worships, if they keep preaching, then she will be dethroned from her magnificence. She'll be uprooted and will be out of business. Thank God for it. They needed to be out of business, didn't they? Isn't it wonderful to see, and the Bible says when they burned their books of magic, when they burned their spell books, they didn't burn other people's books, they burned their own. They didn't go to the bookstore and buy books, they burned the ones they had. And we could learn a thing or two from that. But when they burned those books in the sight of all because they weren't ashamed of the gospel, isn't it wonderful that it says the word of God was growing mightily and was prevailing. And I believe that you're, you're in the same boat as me. We want to see the word of God growing mightily and prevailing in this region. Growing mightily and prevailing, but it can't grow mightily in the region, prevail in the region, if it doesn't first grow mightily in us and prevail in us. That's what we saw with the Ephesian church. It prevailed in them. It prevailed in them enough that they were willing to... Uh, get rid of their safety nets. They were re- willing to get rid of their idolatry in the sight of everybody else. So what really caused the word of God to prevail in the city was it prevailing in them. We move on and uh, the, these folks in Ephesus, the silversmiths who make all their money off idols, they've come into an uproar. They're about to riot. And in fact, if we, we pick up in Acts chapter 19, and we're going to kind of motor through this part to get... Um, a little bit later to the end of, you know, end of 19 and, and specifically to 20. Um, but here's what happens because we've, we've kind of already gone over the riot. What ha- but I, I don't want to skip a verse either. So for your sake, we're going to read it. It says in verse 28, when they heard this, they were filled with rage and they began crying out saying, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city was filled with the confusion and they rushed with one accord into the theater dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. And when Paul wanted to go into the assembly, the disciples would not let him. Also, some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater. So then some of them were shouting one thing and some of them were shouting another. For the assembly was in confusion and the majority did not know for what reason they'd even come together. Isn't that the way it goes, huh? There's a riot, there's a crowd, I'm, I'm, I'm in. What are we rioting about? Welcome to, I mean, it's not just a product of the modern world, apparently. But it says, some of the crowd concluded it was Alexander, since the Jews had put him forward. And having motion with his hand, Alexander was intending to make a defense to the assembly. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, a single outcry arose from all of them as they shouted for about two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. What a waste of two hours for a goddess that doesn't have the ability to speak or to do anything because she doesn't exist. Kind of like the 
priests of Baal who marched around and stripped themselves naked and sweat and yelled and did all those things. And Elijah just called down fire and the altar was consumed and these poor saps got executed. So it's kind of the same thing, just screaming to a, a, a goddess that can't help them. And they, but they scream it for two hours. And in verse 35, after quieting the crowd, the town clerk said, men of Ephesus, what man is there after all who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of the image which fell down from heaven? So since these are undeniable facts, you ought to keep calm and do nothing rash. Bless the town clerk's heart. He's just saying what needs to be said to to calm the crowd. He says, for you brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of our goddess. So then if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against any man, the courts are in session, the proconsuls are available, let them bring charges against one another. But if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in the lawful assembly. For indeed, we're in danger of being accused of a riot in connection with today's events, since there's no real cause for it. And in this connection, we will be unable to account for this disorderly gathering. After saying this, he dismissed the assembly. We're not going to spend too much time on this, because we really did spend a lot of time on the riot, why it was caused. What we can take from this, though, is that God used a a heathen to defuse the situation, used a pagan to defuse it, and it came to nothing. But then when we get to chapter 20, Paul is still in Ephesus. He hasn't been able to go into the theater because the disciples said, if you go in there, you might be killed. By the time we get to chapter 20, it says, after the uproar had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and when he had exhorted them and taken his leave of them, he left to go to Macedonia. When he'd gone through those districts and had given them much exhortation, he came to Greece. And there he spent three months. And when a plot was formed against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to turn, return through Macedonia. So Macedonia at that time is not the Macedonia we know today. The Macedonia we know today is much smaller. But the Macedonia of Paul's age was part of a Roman province. So Greece was split up into Achaia and Macedonia. And Achaia, the southern part, was, was what they're referring to when they say Greece. So Macedonia was northern Greece. So in Macedonia, you have the Philippians, you have the Bereans, you have the Thessalonians. These are the people that you find up north. So he's, he's gone to this place. He's gone um, to set sail for Syria, and he decides to return through Macedonia. As he's accompanied by Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus, and by Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, Antichius and Trophimus of Asia. But these had gone ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. We sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and then came to them at Troas within five days. And there we stayed for seven days. Now, there's not going to be a quiz at the end of the sermon. Um, Most of you, I'm just going to go ahead and accept this. I'm not trying to to knock you down, but most of us aren't going to walk out of here and know, be able to spin a globe and point out all these places and remember all these names. The important thing is we've squished a bunch of ministry into a few verses, but he's done a lot of ministry. He finds himself back now into Troas, and there they stayed for a whole week. And he's got an entourage with him that he's gathered from these different cities and these different towns that he's gone through. One of them's named Tychius, and he's going to be important in a minute. Absolutely, Tychius is not going to be important. Forgive me. Eutychus is going to be important. You know... To a Canadian like me, sometimes they all sound the same, but Tychius is important, just not for, for tonight. So let's just keep on reading. It says, on the first day of the week, 
When we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. You guys think you have it bad. <laughs> Paul prolonged until midnight. Now, one of the reasons is he's about to leave, right? So he's, he's, they're, they're squeezing all the juice they can. Another reason, I think you've noticed this, is that uh, really time is something that, that we deal with here on earth, but God is not contained by time. And in fact, the, sometimes the, the more we just press in and the more we really get into that place where we're, we're hungering for him and hungering for his word, you find that time doesn't matter as much. I'm not saying that so that I can keep you to midnight tonight, but I am saying uh, I don't think anybody complained about this. But now think about the situation. They're all gathered in an upper room. It's already probably a warm evening. There are lamps lit. The room, you got as many people stuffed in that room as you can. Now, we've got some space here today. But, you know, for instance, in the church in Loon Lake, there's been plenty of times where it was freezing cold outside. But then the place fills up. And as the place fills up, you had the heat on to try to help. But as the place fills up, we are so desperate to get outside when the service is over just to feel a fresh bit of air because that, that place, the, the air kind of gets sucked out. And, the, you know, they've even got lamps. They've got fire up there. And so I don't imagine there's a ton of oxygen in the room. I imagine it's muggy. I imagine it's hot. And it's midnight. And these aren't people who have, you know, stay up till midnight regularly. We do this now. We stay up late because we've got electric lights. And, and night's not as big of a, a deal uh, as it was back then. And then when the sun went down, that was kind of your cue. You shouldn't be working anymore. You should be getting ready and, and uh, starting your evening and, and in fact going to bed very soon. So by midnight, think about midnight for them as actually would feel like a lot later for us. And here's what happens. It says, there were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together. And there was a young man named Eutychus sitting on the windowsill sinking into a deep sleep. Now, from my perspective, I know what this looks like because I stand on the stage and every now and then, it's, it's more and more rare, but every now and then, you'll find somebody and you know they're fighting it. I know, for instance, we've had guys work on the oil rigs and they, they've worked all night and they come to church in the morning. They haven't gone to bed yet. And so they're fighting it. They're, you know, a guy like Josh, for instance, goes up and stands next to the ushers just so he can be standing. Well, Eutychus has picked the spot with the most oxygen. He's right on the windowsill. He's sitting there, but it says he's sinking into a deep sleep. Can you imagine? You pro probably some people looked at him every now and then thinking, huh, eh, he's getting close. And I don't think it was because he was bored by what Paul was saying. But simply because it was late, wasn't a lot of oxygen, it was hot, and it says he was overcome by sleep. But as Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by sleep, and he fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead. But Paul went down and fell upon him. And that might remind you of some of the Old Testament prophets, men like Elisha, that, would, that fell on somebody, like just put their body against that, the other body. And, and uh, in fact, you know, in one case, you know, put his mouth on him. But in this case, Paul just, he falls on top of him. He embraces him. And it says, after embracing him, he said, do not be troubled for his life is in him. So the question happens, did Paul just, while he embraced him, realize, oh, he's not actually dead? No, because the Bible says, and I trust the Bible, the Bible says when they picked him up, he was dead. But after Paul embraced him, there was life in this little, this young man again. All of a sudden, this man, young man, has come back from the dead, has life in him, 
And it says, when he'd gone back up and had broken the bread and eaten, he talked with him a long while until daybreak and then left. Can you imagine? You've been talking long enough that somebody falls out of the, the window and dies. You say, all better. You're alive. Let's go back up. Let's eat some bread. And we're going to talk some more. That's good, hey? How would you feel about that? We would, we would tend to stop the service. We'd say, that's a good stopping point. Somebody died. But there was stuff to say. So Paul just keeps talking until daybreak. Until daybreak. So here he goes. Says he picks him up. They go up. They talk till daybreak. And then he left. And they took away the boy alive and were greatly comforted. That that might sound like an understatement to you. I, I would be greatly comforted by my son or my friend or my my relative being um, brought back to life after you knew he was dead. The p- first person that picked him up could have been his father, could have been a relative. No, no matter what, it was part of the family of God. They love this young man. They pick him up. He's dead. You can imagine they're greatly comforted and they take him away alive. Can you also imagine that that means he stuck around too? We would think you'd get a free pass. You can go home and rest a little bit. You just died. But no, he goes back up and we're going to talk some more. Sit here. Don't sit in the window anymore. You get to sit over there. <laughs> You get, you, get, uh, you get tired, you know. We, we, we've let your mother sit next to you, and she's going to smack your pinch of your ear every time you start to drowse a little bit. And, and one thing that, that we see in this, now, now, there's two times in the book of Acts that the apostle Paul is involved in somebody being brought back from the dead. If you'll recall, in Acts 9, I believe it was, where Dorcas is brought back to life. And in fact, Jesus, you know, there was a handful of times that he uh, brought somebody back to life, and, and we have to ask ourselves, was this the mission of Paul to go around raising people from the dead? That might have been an awkward period of time where nobody just seems to be dying, or was it the mission of Jesus? You know, I, as you study the works of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, you see that everyone that was sick that came to him, he healed, says he healed them all. Everyone who came oppressed by the devil, he healed them all. But we only have like three uh, instances of him raising someone else from the dead. Does it mean that Jesus didn't care for the other ones? No. But uh, I believe, and this is my opinion, so I'm going to tell you my opinion because there's not a scripture that says this clearly. My opinion is that there's a different level between healing the sick and raising the dead. And I believe as Jesus commanded his disciples, when he let them off and he sent them loose, his last command to them was that they would lay hands on the sick and they would recover. Now, when he sent them out earlier in his ministry, he told them, raise the dead. But when he sent them out after, after he was risen from the dead and he was about to leave, he said, lay hands on the sick, they will recover, speak in new tongues. All of this will happen. But he doesn't say raise the dead. Do we believe that God still raises the dead? I absolutely do. Well, I got some stories we could tell you, uh, but I don't want your attention to be on the stories today. I believe God still raises the dead, but I don't believe that's up to us. I believe the, the command there is, James says, if there is anyone sick among you, you are to pray for them. And the prayer of faith will restore the one that's sick. It's very clear about that. If somebody's sick, you pray for them. It doesn't say if anybody's dead, you raise them up because eventually somebody's got to die. You know, Lazarus was risen from the dead, but as I said before, he's not working at a gas station somewhere. 
He's not, he's not still going, boy, I wish I could go on to heaven. I'm really getting tired of this earth. I'm, I, I am immortal, but you know, I'd, I'm really getting, it's getting old. No, he eventually did die. And uh, so this, this is an interesting thing because how do you know? How did Paul know that this boy was supposed to come back? Well, he had the Holy Spirit inside of them, uh, inside of him. I believe that very clearly, we, and I've said this before, but I believe that God still raises the dead. We serve a God who can raise the dead. But I don't go to every funeral and say, okay, well, if we don't raise the dead, we don't have enough faith. You know, we, we would live in a very awkward society if we didn't allow anybody to ever die. So this is an interesting point of our faith because I do believe that we're supposed to pray for the sick. I do believe that we're supposed to do all this. But I believe that God gets to choose whether someone has risen from the dead or not. And it took the Apostle Paul being sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Took Jesus, of course, being led by the Holy Spirit, led by his Father. He said, I don't do anything unless the Father tells me. But I want to read you some things that, that uh, I think are going to link into this that I hope will bring you some encouragement tonight. It's completely possible in my mind that God could raise the dead here in Lloydminster. Completely possible. We serve a God who can do that. But in your everyday life, what are you going to take from this? What are you going to glean from this? Are you just going to stomp around to funerals and go, God, is this the one? Or is there something that can help you even today and tomorrow when you, when you think about a God that raises the dead? And I'd like us to turn for a minute into the book of 2 Corinthians. The letter to the Corinthians, the second one, starts out with some pretty rough stuff that they're going through. Paul and his companions um, are letting the church know what they had to go through. And apparently there was some stuff we might not even know about. Um, we don't know whether it's alluded to in Acts or not. But they went through some rough things. In 2 Corinthians 1, in verse 8, says, for we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia. Now, once again, just for your reference, when he talks about Asia, he's not talking about China, Japan, and India. He's speaking of the Roman province of Asia, which is now mostly Turkey and a little bit of Greece. So it's just across the strait from what's now Istanbul. If you crossed over here, this is to the east, that's Asia. And so here he says... Uh, we were burdened. There was an affliction that came on us. Affliction, the Greek word for affliction means that evil is done to you. Um, in no case in the New Testament that I can find is affliction ever referred to as something that God begins, but rather something that humans uh, are motivated to do, and, and this is often tied with persecution. So they were, uh, of course, being persecuted, afflicted. Evil was being done to them. But it says this, that it came to us in Asia, and we were burdened excessively. You see, the Apostle Paul and his buddies were used to being burdened. Burden was no, was no you know, extraordinary thing. That was something that was regular for them. They, you minister to the gospel, you're going to have some burdens you've got to bear at some point. They knew how to endure. They knew how to, they knew how to fight. They knew how to go and keep going and not give up. But it says here they were burdened excessively. It was beyond what they were prepared for. It was beyond what they thought they could handle. And it says they were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. Despair means that hope is gone. You, you, you gave up hope. Now, for the apostle Paul to lose hope, this is an amazing thing because the guy has been through a lot. 
And he doesn't seem to show a lot of elements of fear. But at this point, things must have gotten so bad that he says it was beyond our strength. We were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. We were convinced we were going to die. He says in verse 9, indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. Now, there have been plenty of times that they had the sentence of death over them. And how many of you know that, that there's nothing to fear when, when man puts a sentence of death on you? You're a servant of the living God. And if we live, we live to him. And if we die, it's gain. And I'm not afraid of somebody putting the sentence of death on me. But here, the sentence of death was within himself. He was convinced himself. We were going to die. But it says this, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Then he goes on, and, and this is really encouraging to me, who delivered us from so great a peril of death. God delivered them from that peril. Then he says this, and he will deliver us. He on whom we've set our hope, he will yet deliver us. I want you to see how his past experience has led him to believe that if God delivered us then, he can deliver us again. And his belief that God could deliver us at this point, so the way I read it is that Paul got to this point where his burden excessively starts to believe we despaired even of life, but at a certain point, because remember, it's beyond his strength. It's beyond what they can handle. He's already starting to give up, but at a certain point, it shifts. It shifts from it's beyond our strength to him saying, but we put our trust. We stopped trusting in ourselves because it wasn't working. And we put our trust instead on a God who is able to raise the dead. I want you to see that Paul's belief and firm knowledge that if I serve a God who can raise the dead, why am I afraid right now? If I serve a God that can raise the dead, why am I despairing right now? I don't see despair ever used as something in the New Testament that should be a part of your life. Despair means there's no hope. And hope, as we know, is one of the main fruit of the Spirit. Faith, hope, and love abide in 1 Corinthians 13. It says, at the end of the day, here's what lasts. Faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. But we know that hope is meant to be a part of us at all times. The Bible says that that hope is an anchor for our souls. And they had lost their hope. Until they switched it. Until they stopped hoping in themselves and started hoping in God who is able to raise the dead. See, tonight, you may very well someday in your life see God raise the dead. I don't know. I'm not going to put limits on God. But I don't need to see that to know that he can and know he's completely able. And the knowledge that he's able to raise the dead even affects me right now. I think differently about it. No, Paul, I, I don't know whether he thought if we die, we'll just be raised. And it certainly seemed like that one day where he was stoned, not stoned like we would say today. <laughs> Rocks were thrown at him till he died, okay? Dragged out of the city, presumed dead by people that pretty much were experts at stoning and probably knew when you were dead. The disciples gathered around him and remember what happened as the disciples gathered around him and I don't think they were just gawking at him. I think they would have done what you would do in a similar situation and they prayed over him. That's just my my own opinion but it seems to me that would be the natural thing for a disciple to do. 
I don't think we just gather around and go, well, he did all right. Yeah, he did. And it says that he got up. And Paul, that, that roughneck that he is, that stubborn apostle that he is, gets up from just being stoned either to death or very, very near death, gets up and walks right back into the city. Can you imagine that? Just walks right back into the city. Well, hey, if, if God can do it, if God can raise me up, then, then what's stopping me from going back in the city? A little bit of pain? No, a little bit of pain's nothing. So here, his knowledge that God can raise the dead causes him to switch his hope, which had been on himself for some time. I'll tell you how we know his hope was on ourselves because he said, he said, this led us to believe that we couldn't trust in ourselves. We would not trust in ourselves. Do you know even the, the heroes of faith, even the giants of, of our Bible stories, these fellows and these women still at times were prone to do what we do when you get good at something. First, you first start out in the ministry, you trust God. You first start preaching. I mean, I remember when I first started preaching and Saturday night was torture because Saturday night, I'd just, I just be sprawled out on the carpet going, God, you got to help me. 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 But you preach long enough, and you start to believe, you know what, I can do this. It's a dangerous thing, because if you start to believe you can do it on your own, you might be able to fake it, you might be able to even pull some emotional heartstrings, and people respond, but it does no good. There's no power there. And so, you learn at some point, and sometimes it takes you tripping over something to learn this, but you learn at some point, I'm not going to put my hope in me. I'm going to put my hope in God. I'm going to trust in the grace of God here. And so this is what Paul did. I, I imagine they, you know, he, he, he might have thought, well, we've got out of scrapes before. He might have thought, put me, put me on trial, and I know how to talk my way out of this. We're going to read in a little bit how, in a few weeks, how he stood before a group of people, and he knew there were Pharisees here and Sadducees here, and he knew the Pharisees and the Sadducees were most of the time fighting against each other because one believed in resurrection of the dead and the other one didn't. But they were joined together to, to hate on him. And so while he's on trial, he goes, I'm on trial because of the resurrection of the dead. And instantly those two groups go at each other and he slowly steps out the back and just lets them fight. So he might have thought, I can get out of this. I, I can get out of this. We've, all, we've got out of it before. But it got to the point where he realized there was no getting out of this without the intervention of God. And here's what he clung, clung to, clung to. This is what he was clinging to, let's just say that. Was that God was able to raise the dead. So whether or not that means he's going to raise me up from the dead, or it means that if God can raise the dead, this is no big deal for him. You see, raising the dead, in my mind, is like the, the biggest miracle and in fact, that's why our salvation was the biggest miracle we'll ever see, because we were dead, and now we're alive. That's the greatest miracle we'll ever know. That's the big one. That's the one we talk about. Jesus said to the disciples, guys, don't, be, I mean, don't rejoice too much that the demons listen to you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So the greatest miracle of all is that we were dead, but now we live. But even physical resurrection, knowing that, guys, God is going to raise us from the dead. Do you know that there is a resurrection to come? And knowing that God, even in this life, can raise the dead. 
then that's not impossible for him. That's no big deal. That's not a hard thing for God. For Jesus to speak into the tomb and say, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus' cells and his organs and everything that's shut down and begin to break down over those days comes back and is recreated and life is pumping through his body and he comes to the voice of Jesus. And even then, that's not a hard thing for God. None of this was hard. You see, I personally believe that it doesn't take a lot more effort for Jesus to raise Lazarus than it did for Jesus to heal a headache. Because the Bible says he had the spirit without measure. But he did what the Father told him to do. But I'm telling you just the knowledge that we serve a God who can raise the dead. And I, I, I want to be careful how I say this because I don't want you to just purely turn it into a metaphor. I want you to know Jesus can physically, and did physically in this story, physically raise the boy up. Not just a, it wasn't just a nice parable. It wasn't a nice story. There was a kid who died and came back to life. So that's huge. You got to remember that. But then also, let's think about this. Let's think about how the power of God, if he's able to raise our bodies, I don't think we realize this sometimes, the being able to raise our bodies is not even as big. It's not the biggest miracle. The biggest miracle is what happens on the inside of us. That's the, real, that's the real deal. So if God is able to raise our bodies, how much more? How much more can he raise us back to life in the inside? How much more can he raise your kids back to life? This young man was physically dead, but how many of them, how many of them do we see that are spiritually just stagnant and just sleepwalking through life? And how much more can the Spirit of God raise them? In the same sense, the scripture says in Romans 8, if the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in us, it'll make alive our mortal, death-bound, physical body that God is able to raise these bodies from the dead. I don't know what the resurrection is going to look like when Jesus returns and the dead in Christ rise first. The Bible says in Paul's letter to Thessalonians that we might have some different views on eschatology. You might have some different views on whether there's a rapture or when it happens or whatever. I'm not going to address that, but let's just talk about what the scripture says. It says that Jesus will return and he brings those that have fallen asleep because in the New Testament, it never says, it rarely says they die. It says they fall asleep because sleep is temporary. And these bodies will be raised again. It says those that have fallen asleep in Christ will return with him. And then it says they'll go back and they'll be raised and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, I don't know what that's going to look like. And over thousands of years, how many bodies just turn to dust? How many bodies are part of other bodies? I mean, it doesn't take that long for that to happen. But the scripture says God is able to give a body. And we don't need to get too deep in this. I don't want to get too far off the rabbit trail. But know this, that if, we don't, if you don't live to see Christ return on this earth, you're still going to be resurrected. The Apostle Paul said, if there's no resurrection, there's no hope for any of us. He said, we might as well eat and drink for tomorrow we die. There's resurrection. We serve a God who is the resurrection and the life. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he perish, yet he will live. I want to read you yet another example of this in Hebrews chapter 11.
I love the book of Hebrews, and I love how it's so clear on what God can and will do, and, and, and clear on our new covenant and how, how it's so much better. Even though the old was good, the new is better. But he uses some examples from the old covenant to show us how people trusted in God. Hebrews eleven seventeen says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he, had only, he, had, he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was, to he, it was he to whom it was said, in Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. And you see what he says? One thing that's going through Abraham's mind, Abraham doesn't know that an angel is going to stop his hand. But Abraham knows this, God is able to raise people from the dead. I think, guys, if we went through life with that reality, we serve a God who can raise the dead. Is there anything impossible for him? We would stop praying prayers that budget God. And honestly, the Bible says if we pray, we've got to pray according to his will anyways, right? So, you know, you're not praying that you'll have a pet rainbow unicorn. You're praying what the word of God says. It says if we pray according to his will, he hears us. And if he hears us, we have whatever we've asked. But we'd stop acting like we're doing God a favor by saying, oh, you know what? (laughs) I know you can do this, but let's just start here. When we go through life saying, I serve a God who can raise the dead. Is there anything impossible for him? Is there anything that's worth fearing in in this planet if you serve a God that can raise the dead? Is there anything worth stealing your hope if you serve a God who can raise the dead? And that's the most, one of the most valuable things that we give up easy is is our hope. That hope, remember what I said earlier, Hebrews says that hope is an anchor for our soul. The Bible, you know, tends to define our soul as, as that mind, will, and emotions, that part of you that so often when you're trusting God goes off the deep end. Because we know how to trust God for two days. We know how to pray and say, Lord, I know you're going to come through. But then three weeks later, boy, that, that, that might have wore off a little bit. But the Bible says that that hope is an anchor for our soul. And in the context it's talking about, it's talking about our hope of salvation. But it certainly extends to other things. That hope anchors our soul. And I think many, a time, many times when we're praying or we're trusting God, it's our soul that gets off. It's our brain that just starts to wander and says, well, what if not this time? Or, 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 you know, what if this person does this? Or what if I can't do this? And we begin to wander off the promises of God. But the book of Romans says that Abraham considered his body as good as dead, looked at his body, realized I don't have it, I can't do this, He considered the deadness of Sarah's womb. Maybe if he was smart, he didn't say it out loud while he was considering it. Right? What do you think about, honey? You look lost in thought. Just think about the deadness of your womb. Not the best thing to say if you want a hot meal, right? But it says he considered his own body, said, it's good as dead. My wife's womb is dead. It says, but with respect to the promises of God, he did not waver in unbelief. But he grew strong in the faith, giving glory to God. How many years was that? That was several years. 
How many of us, after we pray, after we feel like we're doing what the Lord has led us to do, how many of us grow stronger the more time passes before we see the, the answer? It's often the opposite, isn't it? You're so pumped up when you pray. Oh, written in the word. I'm excited to preach the message. And you're, you're, oh, you got to take on the world. Who can stop us now? And you pray with that confidence. And then uh, a week passes. And uh, you're starting to question whether you took the right turn back there. Then two weeks pass. And three weeks. And you start to think, maybe I prayed wrong. Four weeks, five weeks pass. And you say, maybe I... Maybe the preacher was wrong. I, you know, I, I, I've gone off the deep end. And then you start to question God. But Abraham somehow grew strong in the faith. He grew strong in the faith. Got stronger as he went. And one of the keys there is he gave glory to God. Giving glory to God before you see the answer is, a, is an evidence that you trust him. But he considered that God is able to raise even people from the dead. That hope was an anchor for his soul. Entered into the very throne room of God. I want us to live life in the reality that we don't serve a philosophical God. We don't serve a God of history, merely of history. We don't serve a God of stories. We don't serve a God of fairy tales. We serve a real and living God. And even if you never saw a human being get up from the dead, you will see the resurrection power of God in your daily life. Because the resurrection power of Jesus Christ affects everything we do. I am who I am because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, it was the Apostle Paul arguing for the case that Jesus rose from the dead. It was when he was arguing that, that we will rise from the dead. And then he begins to explain how we know Jesus rose from the dead. And in that same paragraph, he says this, and then Christ appeared to me. He talks about how Jesus appeared to the disciples, how he appeared to Peter and to Mary, and then to a big group of them. And he appeared to his brother James. And then he says, and he appeared to me, finally appeared to me. Least of all, as though one untimely born. He said, I am the very least of the apostles because I persecuted the church. He said, I'm not fit to be called an apostle because of the persecution. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace was not in vain towards me. But his grace was more than sufficient. He said, I worked harder than everyone else, but not me. The grace of God threw me. How does he attach resurrection to him being called as an apostle and him being qualified as an apostle. Because he's, he's connecting the thought that because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because he rose again, I've risen with him. And what I couldn't be and who I wasn't is not the issue. I might not be qualified, but by the grace of God, in other words, the empowering, he did what I couldn't do. By the grace of God, I am an apostle. And I'm not ashamed to be called the apostle or an apostle. This is how in regular life, the Bible says if we died with him, we will also be raised with him. But in another place, it says we have been raised up with Christ and seated in heavenly places. So we know there's a resurrection to come, but you've got to live in the reality right now that the resurrection power of Jesus Christ is dwelling in you at this moment. 
And who you were and your old ways and your old self, that died and you were risen again. And I got to live with the reality. I have to live with the reality that I serve a God who can raise the dead, who does raise the dead, who raised me back to life. But like I said, don't keep it in a metaphor land. Don't keep it in, in just symbolism. He raised us up and he will yet deliver us. For Paul... For Paul, it was what kept him from despair was knowing that God could raise the dead. And he makes this powerful statement. It was he who delivered us from such a great peril. And he will deliver us. He says it's he that we've set our hope on. He will yet deliver us. Guys, we're going to face some stuff that seems beyond your strength. We're going to face stuff that seems utterly beyond your ability to handle it to carry it, to bear it. But the grace of God is more than sufficient for you and you serve a God who can raise the dead. Next time you are taken aback by the boldness of what you're trusting God with, the audacity of which you trust God, remind yourself that you serve a God who raises the dead. Is this too hard for God? Is this too difficult for him? Am I doing him a favor by letting him off and saying, well, God, you promised it. Now, first of all, God is not our genie. He's not our servant. But when he makes a promise, he will keep his word. He desires to keep his word. The Bible says it's impossible for God to lie. When we trust in the Lord, I want you to remember this. I serve a God who raises the dead. Whether or not I may see it in my life, I may see a human being come back from the dead. But every day I'm seeing people come back from death to life. And that excites me greatly. And you should live a life that's fully in the awareness of a God that's bigger than what you expect, of a God that can do more than you have thought he could do. And through him, all things are possible to him who believes. We don't believe, we don't have faith in our faith, we have faith in our God. We trust in his word. And like I said, guys, we don't want to be presumptuous. You know what presumptuous is? Presumption would be if you walked into Macaw's funeral home and said, I'm going to sit at the door here and everybody that comes through, I'm going to raise them from the dead. That's above your pay grade. That's not your call. But God could very well raise someone from the dead. It would be his doing. But we do serve a God who does raise the dead. So that makes me happy. That makes me think, this thing I'm praying about, this thing I'm trusting God in, It's no big deal for him. Amen. Let's stand up together.